What's up, guys? Welcome back to our Fluency Fast Track podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about the biggest determining factors in how you speak. Today, we want to boil it down into three things that are very measurable. Obviously, there are many, many things, and this is a very multifaceted thing to think about and to prepare for as you study English, but we're going to boil it down to three major points today. The three most important factors are who you are talking to, your relationship to that person, and the conversational context. We've spent some time so far in this podcast touching on generational backgrounds, but that's only one piece to who that person is and how they tick. That background information helps inform the way that person thinks, their paralanguage, their perceptions of you and the world and their expectations. But of course, these factors are not solely defined by their generational background. It's also defined by the current culture they live in, their socioeconomic status, their educational background, and their unique personal experiences and personality. Therefore, no one person communicates exactly the same as another, even if they were raised in identical upbringings. That means that two brothers or two sisters or a brother and a sister can be raised exactly the same way, but they're going to be slightly different. Now, this is not news to any of you. Obviously, this is a fact of life. So we're not going to camp here for very long at all. But we want you to understand and we want you to have the tools to be able to work toward an understanding of American culture and generational backgrounds of a person because it gives you a decent clue as to how to communicate with that person. For example, like we've said in a previous podcast, if I'm talking to a person from an older generation, I know that they have maybe gone through World War II or they have gone through something really harsh in their lifetime. It really will change the way that I talk to that person. I'm going to talk to my great-grandfather differently than I'm going to talk to my grandfather or my father. These generational differences change some of the language that we say, not just with things like sir or may I, but in a lot of ways like vocabulary and paralanguage and body language. And sometimes I find, especially with older generations, that means simply closing my mouth or asking them questions about their perceptions and what they've seen in their life or their perspective on all of this in light of the things that they've already seen in their life. Generally speaking, many of them really enjoy sharing about those times because nobody's asking them anymore. They're not living those times anymore, but they're very real to them. That's just like yesterday to some of them. So whenever you're speaking to an older person, you can always ask them about their time and their experience. Generally speaking, an American will appreciate that to a degree. But on the other hand, if you are talking to a 20-year-old, you're going to hear them talk about themselves a lot, obviously, but they may use different vocabulary or different connotations with what they're saying. They may be more boastful, but they're still talking about themselves, like a person from an older generation might be talking about their history as well, but they're doing it in a different way. They're doing it in a different light. And you can pick that up as you see these generational differences between those that are older and those that are maybe a little bit younger. The second point to consider here is you're thinking about determining factors. The biggest determining factors in how you speak definitely comes down to your relationship to that person. It plays a huge role in how you should speak to a person just as it does in your culture. Obviously, being a close friend to the family warrants different paralanguage and speech patterns than meeting somebody for the first time. 
This relationship, or lack thereof, dictates everything, from the space between you and that other person, to the topics you discuss, to the level of body language and facial expressions you allow yourself to express. Absolutely. This idea of relationship really controls the kind of conversations that can happen in a conversation. So if you're talking to a coworker, there are going to be many topics that are off the table. There are going to be many topics, many conversations that you cannot have just because you have that relationship as a coworker, that space as a coworker. You're going to stand further apart. You will likely have a great deal of space between each other. You will likely use more flat language, never being super specific or judgmental about certain topics that may be considered controversial. You're going to kind of hide a little bit, a little bit of the degree of what you believe because it's your coworker. You're not going to get into an argument over what you really believe about this controversial topic because it's going to be time to get to work soon. But with your family, with people that you have to see every day, you might get into those things because you have to see this person on a regular basis for an extended period of time. So you have to have that conversation sooner or later. You'll be closer to them physically, and it's just a matter of time, basically, before these kind of conversations turn out. This is just one example of how relationship dictates the kinds of conversation that you may have. Now, I must warn you that there are many people who like to break through these cultural norms. These folks may have no filter, treat you like family from day one, or they may give you hugs and invite you to spontaneous activities on impulse. We all know people like this in our lives from your cultures. You might already know plenty of Americans like this. Americans, especially in the American South, there is this big culture here of just bringing somebody into your dinner table and filling them with so much food that they can just roll out the door later on in the day. Not knowing how many hours they were there at your house. There is this very overwhelmingly friendly culture here in the American South. In the Midwest, in the upper Midwest, there's these stereotypes of just being overly friendly, overly nice, overly polite, not wanting to say goodbye too quickly, but you're not going to bring them into your house necessarily as often as a Southerner would. However, if you're in New York, very different feel up there in the Northeast. And again, in California, also a very different speed and way of life and a level of friendliness. So all those things kind of harken back to the first point, that there are some kind of cultural things that define a person that makes them more or less likely to talk about or do certain things. But her point here is relationship determines greatly what can be said in a conversation. And like Amber just said, there are outliers. There are outliers that have no filter. There are some people that will just say, I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel. I'm not going to hide what I want to say. They have no tact. They can be seemingly rude to people who have more of a warm cultural kind of feeling. But the same is true for the opposite extreme, like Amber just discussed. So there are a wide variety of cultures across America, and there are even outliers within those cultures. The point here is that your relationship impacts what you say 100% of the time. The third major factor that determines how you speak is the conversational context. This is another very obvious point. So you can follow your gut here, as we all know that when someone says something sad, 
then you should not start talking about the things that make you happy. There's some common sense things. But sometimes it's awkward when you are put in a situation where you really don't know what to say. For example, what if you started talking about the beautiful sunny weather outside with a coworker in the break room? And they say that they actually hate the sun because they have extremely sensitive skin. What do you do in such an awkward situation? I slapped him. Better not. <laughs> yeah, these awkward situations, they happen all the time because you say something that you think is innocent. You think that what you say may not be offensive, but surprisingly, the other person has a real life circumstance that is somewhat random that in your mind you've already determined is not a thing like being allergic to the sun, for example. So you don't think anything about it. But to them, it's a reality. And so in these cases, you will likely need to default to your relationship with that person and who they are as far as you know. Like if they're a 20-something coworker who often complains at the office and thus remains an acquaintance you tend to avoid, you can just shrug it off and say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then walk away. But if you like working with that coworker, and if you feel like you could be friends at some point, if you are intentionally seeking to kind of push the friendship further, then you can take that conversation further, be more interested and concerned and asking follow up questions saying like, oh, no, I'm so sorry you have to struggle with that. Is there anything that can help you? The reason in this situation, for example, that you would not say, is there anything I can do that can help you is because you're not there yet. If this is a coworker, you're not really friends yet. This is not something you can really offer because it's related to a health issue and that's a very personal thing. This is kind of a safe thing. If you take yourself out of the question, you're just solely focusing on them. Is there anything that can help you? You're leaving it open for them if they are going to reciprocate that by saying, yeah, I mean, do you happen to have any sunblock or do you happen to have an umbrella? so that I can get to my car without burning in the sun, that would be great. So there's things like this, little things like this, and that sounds very nuanced. It sounds very difficult for an ESL learner. I get it. I've been there, struggled with that. But it's something too that you can also just follow your gut. You would be surprised at how much you can follow your gut on this as you observe the culture. Just make sure that you're putting yourself in a place consistently all the time to listen and watch, observe, and understand how to handle these situations. Yeah, every culture is going to have kind of tells, if you will, nuances that let the other person know whether or not they would like more help, whether or not they would like to pursue a deeper friendship. It's surprisingly complex thing to develop relationships, especially as adults. Children are really good at it. They just meet each other for the first time and say that they both have shoes that light up and immediately they're friends. And it's pretty amazing. But with adults, it's much more complex. And we can get into that in another podcast. But for now, the point is, is that you need to realize that what is happening, the cultural context that you are in, whether you're in a business meeting, whether you're trying to seek advice from a friend, whether a boss is getting on to you for being late, for turning the project in late. These are all certain contexts that determine what can be said and what should not be said. And a general rule of thumb is don't spend much time talking about yourself. It's really funny when you get two people that are very aware of this, trying to talk with one another because they keep asking questions about the other one and it makes it kind of fun. Usually both parties know exactly what's happening and they just get comfortable with sharing 
a little bit about themselves to answer the question and then reciprocate that question nicely. Like, oh, what about you? How are your kids doing? One thing to note in general about American culture is that we do not close the gap in relational space very quickly. We can be very warm and very friendly and very accommodating, and some people are definitely more so than others. But generally speaking, we have this very polite friendliness that is a very general mark of American culture. We're famous around the world for it. It makes us loud. It makes us very informal, but it makes us also very friendly, sometimes overwhelmingly so. But at the same time, that's also polite here. That is perceived to be polite. If you don't participate in those things, you're kind of cold to us. And some Americans shy away from that. Other Americans, they think that's a breath of relief because they don't have to be overly polite and friendly and bubbly in the conversation. So it really does come down to that type of person and who they are and these factors that we've been talking about today. We tend to close that gap fairly slowly. Now, each person that you meet is going to close that gap at a different speed, at a different pace, and at a different comfort level. You can, as an English language learner, you can let them make that gap closer. That is completely safe. That is my top advice probably because Americans were generally pretty friendly and polite and willing to close those gaps with those around us. And if we don't feel like we have time, we're not going to spend time in conversation as much. So things that you can consider, things that you can consider as clues that an American is willing to close that relational gap a little bit more is if they tend to spend more time talking to you. Like if there's a set amount of time that you're supposed to be working together and they keep closing that gap, they keep asking you more questions about you and who you are and they seem genuinely interested. They put their phone away and they're not looking at their phone constantly. And if they're spending extra time talking to you like a few minutes later or they take a little bit longer each time that you end up talking or conversing, they take longer to say goodbye. Those are great things. Now, external factors, obviously they cut off conversations, even if somebody wants to continue having a conversation, but you can generally tell by whether they write those emails themselves or whether they are checking in on you and they remember you, they remember your name, they remember what you talked about and they're asking for an update on how your kid is doing because they were sick last week. I mean, whatever it is, those are good signals that somebody really cares about you as a person and wants to close that gap. But for a lot of you, you might be asking yourself, but how can I study English for this? Like, how can I figure out a way to actually use this tangibly in my conversations with my coworkers, with the people in my business meetings, with the people that I meet on the streets? Well, we have five ways that you can apply this in your life right now. Number one is arm yourself with idioms that work in various contexts and a few that work in specific contexts. This kind of has the idea of kind of taking a shallow but wide approach, but also a narrow but deep approach as far as idioms, jargon, vocabulary goes. So that when you meet a person, you can actually use words that they use. Yeah, it definitely shows that you're invested in the culture, that you're working really hard to connect with native speakers, just seeking to really do that. They don't know how much you study English. They don't know that you work really hard to study. And many Americans don't know what it's like to really study another language for the goal of really connecting. So this is one of the things that you can do that will surprise people, whether they know what it takes to learn a language or not. It'll be very surprising and they'll be much more at ease with you if you are using idioms. And hey, if you mess up, that's totally fine. It actually lightens the mood, so it makes things a little bit more friendly. Yeah, these idioms and vocabulary, they really work wonders for just kind of showing the other person, I'm one of you. 
I'm invested in this profession or in this skill set, whatever it is, they say, I actually speak your language. And your language is not English. Your language is aviation or your language is farming or your language is plumbing. And if I can talk to a plumber and I can talk plumbing to a plumber, he immediately knows that I care. Number two is studying the body language that you see and mimic it to a degree. So if you meet somebody for the first time, that is probably not the body language you want to mimic the next time you meet somebody or the 10th time you meet somebody. It's kind of a big deal. Everybody handles first impressions very differently and everybody tends to be very different by the fifth or sixth time you talk to that person. Even native speakers. Sometimes it's a joke with our friends to talk about how awkward we were when we first met. And that's not just a youth thing. That's just a normal thing. Because the distance is so different when you meet somebody for the first time. It's not like you meet somebody when you're kids and you're instant best friends because you like the same thing. It's just more like you're being very semi-formal. You're very professional. You look them in the eye. You stand square to them. You shake their hand. That's a very common first impression that people do even in informal situations for adults to do. But we then pull back on that. As things get more familiar, as we find that we have common interests, we start to really loosen up quite a bit. We start to laugh more. We get more exaggerated in our movements. Our language changes. And you can see that change happening. As that happens, we suggest that you follow suit. As far as you are comfortable, of course, if they're like a very bubbly personality and they love to hug and sit right next to you, you don't have to do that. You do not have to reciprocate that. If you are not comfortable, then don't do that. But that's something that you can follow suit to a degree. Let them determine how close the relationship is if you're confused of what body language to use. But you should also protect your own boundaries. You can make it clear. It's like, sorry, I don't really like that. I don't like it when people sit like right next to me. Or maybe you could say something like, oh, sorry, I don't really shake hands. Number three is ask safe questions about the other person. So there are many things that you can ask a person and there are many topics that you can discuss. But some questions are not appropriate in certain contexts or with certain relationships. So what you need to do is to ask safe questions that the other person can answer pretty much regardless of the relationship that they have. So for example, we have an idiom that says that the rain falls on both the rich and the poor. The idea is that weather is kind of a universal problem that a lot of people have. It's not foolproof, especially now with things like air conditioning and warm airtight houses, but was the same. So I can talk to a person that I have no relationship with about the weather because that is something that we share in common. That is an example of a safe question that's actually been kind of overused. So I wouldn't actually recommend using that because now that's kind of become idiomatic to say, how's the weather been? It's kind of seen as a stereotypical small talk question that doesn't actually generate a whole lot of relationship or conversation. But questions like that where you find commonality with the other person and you just ask them kind of open-ended questions. You're not trying to get them to make a judgment call, just asking them about themselves a little bit. These are examples of safe questions. Yeah, this is why Americans generally view having kids as like a relief socially. 
because though your kids might go crazy in social contexts, if your kids are all hanging out and running around or like, hey, I just saw your kid. Your kid just gave me a flower or something like kids break the ice. That's what they do. They're really good at it. They're not accustomed to our adult social norms. So they're going to break that ice and they're going to just barge in there and do what they do, which forces adults connect. Honestly, it's actually a really neat thing. But Generally speaking, you want to avoid any topics like money or health, especially personal health, politics or weight gain or loss. Things of that nature are a bit too close. They're things that you want to do if you're much closer to that person. Number four is ask why to yourself. So sometimes when we are talking to a person, we just get so busy with the discussion that we're not really thinking about anything else other than the next thing that we're going to say. We don't take enough time to actually ask ourselves the question, why did they say that just then? Obviously, we can't do this too much, but if you never do this when talking to a native, then you might not actually get to know them as a person. So for example, if you're talking to a person and you say, what are your plans for this weekend? And they say, it's none of your business. If you just kind of take that and just say, oh, okay, and move on, then you may miss the fact that that person is pushing the relationship away. They're basically saying, I don't want to talk to you about that right now. I'm distancing myself purpose. That's pretty harsh. Now, an ESL speaker may not understand that to the extent that a native speaker would understand that. That is an example of something that you can just ask, why did they say that that way? Why are they talking? Why did they respond when I said, your hair looks really messy today? Why did they get so offended at that? Asking why really gets to kind of dig deeper into actually getting to know the other person and thus knowing the relationship that you have with that person a bit better. And number five is to think back to a conversation that you had earlier in the day or something that you observed and practice going over another way to handle it. You can even do this with TV and movies. Just be aware that those things are all scripted. So it would be a weird situation. Usually it's a dramatized situation, but either way, you can think over some scenario in your mind and you can practice responding to it using body language, paralanguage, facial expressions, intonation, get into ways to handle it different ways. Now, obviously the picture that might be coming up in your mind is how young people like to practice job interviews by doing the same thing over and over again, or trying to decide whether they like saying hello this way or hi this way, or nice to meet you. But it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. If you're nervous about how to approach a situation, this is a great way to run it through your mind, think of different things, and ask questions. Ask questions to a native speaker you are friends with, or your tutor, your teacher. Don't have any qualms about doing that because that's how you learn. Ask questions. It is totally appropriate to practice situations in your mind. And honestly, native speakers do it too all the time. I think it's like a normal human thing. Yeah, there's also a linguistic thing that states that when you learn a language, you're actually kind of creating a new life. So like you may be one way in your native language, you're L1, but when you study English, you're a bit different. Naturally, we already do this as far as languages go, but even within the same language, I may be laying down in bed and I think to myself, man, what could I have said instead of this? And so I kind of create this parallel 
dimension, this parallel reality. Like maybe if I would have said it this way, they would have responded in a more favorable way or something like this. To be able to practice this, even just in your mind, but also out loud or even writing it down, means that you can practice using other ways to describe the same situation, which is an extremely valuable skill because on a daily basis, you encounter so many context, relationships, and even different generations of people that you may not actually be able to know how to navigate them without a lot of practice with a lot of different contexts. All right, well, there you go, guys. As you study ways to take your English from high intermediate or advanced to fluent, bear in mind these three key determining factors in holding successful conversations with Americans. Who you are talking to, your relationship to that person, and the conversational context. And really, guys, these are just three basic factors of communication in just about any language. This is nothing new here. You already have learned this naturally in your own context, in your own language. And so as you put on this new English speaking self, it's not that you lose your personality at all. You just need to find ways to express that personality in culturally appropriate ways here. And that doesn't mean change your personality. It just means making sure that you're sensitive to the culture, that you are aware of how your words are coming across and the impact that they have on your listener. Because these are things that humans are concerned about as they communicate to one another. Absolutely. So thank you guys for joining us on this week's podcast. You can take the listening comprehension quiz as soon as it's live on this page so that you can test your listening comprehension as you listen through podcasts just like this one. You can also jump into Slack at any time. We have a channel called Podcasts in Slack where you can put some comments, you can jump out there, be brave, and put together your two cents on Slack. That is totally awesome. We would love that. It's a great way to keep conversation going, like different things that maybe are happening in your culture and determining factors that are a big deal in your culture. What is the distance like and how quickly does it close in your culture with first impressions? All right, guys, keep striving for fluency and we will catch you on the next one.